I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians. If you have it with you, if you don't, no problem. We'll have some scripture up here on the screen in just a few minutes. Um, but as they're heading out, uh, I just want to ask you a question. And the question is, deals with justice. It, when you think about our culture today, when you think about our society today, what constitutes justice? When we hear throughout our culture today that justice is a buzzword, is it not? I mean, you've got social justice. You've got criminal justice. You have the idea of fairness and equity in all things. We have a society right now and a culture that wants to make everything fair and just. And what we find in that is that man's understanding of justice is often very distorted. Because in order to bring about justice in one area or equity in another area, and to force that creates others being treated unfairly. Well, for many of us, when we think about God, the buzzword is that God is love, that the attribute of God that is most often discussed is this idea of love. And yet, God has many other attributes, and they don't conflict with the attribute of love, because God is the one who defines love. God is love, but love is not God. God defines love. He demonstrates to us this love. He shows us what this love is. And so the question then becomes, is God's justice actually loving? And can God have a righteous judgment? And if he is righteous, and if his judgment is righteous, is it unloving towards the lost? Well, this morning, we're going to kind of deal with this question. And we're going to see that God's judgment actually is a comfort to God's church. That the day of judgment itself brings comfort to his church. But for those who are not a part of his church, those who have not repented and believed on Jesus, the distinction there is going to church doesn't make you a follower of Christ. Simply being a member of a church doesn't make you a follower of Christ. But it is your submission to Christ through repentance and faith. And so this morning, as we look at this together, we're going to actually find that rather than looking outward as with the day of judgment with fear, God's desire is that we would see his coming, Jesus' is coming, with comfort and with peace and with joy. The only ones who are to fear are the ones that will be at the receiving end of his righteous judgment. Those who have rejected Jesus. So let's stand together. We're going to read out of Second Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through 12. And this is what it says. It says, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. 
Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus has revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, as we listen to your word this morning, as we read your word this morning, we pray, Father, that we might see the comfort that we have in you. Father, for those who are not so sure about Jesus, who have heard the gospel but are rejecting the gospel, for those who are still wondering and figuring out if if they want to respond to the gospel by repenting and believing on Christ, I pray that today that there would be a clear understanding of the consequence of not doing so. May it be each of our desires who hear this word this morning to be children worthy of the calling that you've given us. Worthy of not in ourselves, but in Jesus. So Father, may it be true of us this morning that we would be a people who are motivated and drawn towards your grace because of your coming return, because of your promise, and because of your forgiveness. May we stand to receive your award, not the repayment of evil. Lord God, push me aside this morning. May it be you who brings your word forth in power. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. What we're going to see this morning is that comfort on the day of judgment will only be found by being made worthy in Christ. Comfort on the day of judgment will only be found by being made worthy in Christ. We're going to be dealing with this idea of comfort and worthiness in Jesus. That there is nothing that we can do, nothing that is in ourselves that can make us stand before a holy and just God coming to deal and reckon with our sin. Worthiness is found in Jesus, not in ourselves. Now, it's easy to see evil thrive in our world and wonder about God's justice. We see it all the time. We see people who live very odd lifestyles or even sinful lifestyles, and it seems like they're the ones succeeding. 
We see in our culture a love for money that's leading to greed. We see immorality present in all kinds of places. And it seems as if they're thriving. All you have to do is to turn on the TV and look at what celebrity is being highlighted. And then listen to what's being said about their lives. We see a justice system that's broken, not just here, but throughout the world. Or either the penalty is too severe or not severe enough. We experience trials where we're hurt deeply. And it seems as if the person that hurts us is not experiencing any real significant consequence. And we wonder about God's justice. The Thessalonian church, as we saw last week, was experiencing increasing persecution as they, preferred, as we, they pursued Jesus, not less. They were discouraged, questioning if they were living well in Christ and concerned that they may have missed the coming of Jesus. In addition, there were those within the church who lived with no discipline in anticipation of Christ's return. They lived with a recklessness and it was putting a burden on the body of Christ. They simply lived as if Christ was coming tomorrow and so they would live with this reckless abandon. Now it's easy sometimes to think that because we come to Jesus that all of our struggles, all of our our problems, those things will go away. And unfortunately, the gospel was often sold that way. And yet, the gospel calls you, in essence, to come and die. Die to self and take on Christ. In response, we saw in verse 3 through 4 last week, Paul commends them as a church. He wants them to know that they're doing it well. And he says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. Now, you got to think about that for a minute. Think about how that sounds. It, it actually seems a little sadistic, doesn't it? We boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness of faith in all your persecutions and afflictions. That's the thing we're celebrating? That you're being persecuted and you're being afflicted? That's not how it works within our culture. We, we kind of look at people around and we want to get free of affliction and persecution. We want to get free of all disease. We want to get free of all torment, all uncomfortableness, right? It's it's near impossible to say anything today within our culture without being offensive. Somebody on the other end is going to be offended. And all these rules that are unwritten around us leave us with this idea that nothing is really safe. And in the name of safety, we become even more unsafe. See, this is a contrary idea that we can boast in those who are actually enduring well. That it's actually in the trials and persecutions that the church is commended.
one of the great challenges for the church is to see that trials and persecutions are a life of the church. And the closer that we come to the day of the Lord, the more those persecutions and trials will come. Today, in Canada, pastors across the nation in Canada are preaching on the issue of sexual immorality. Why? Because on January 6th, a bill was passed making it illegal for anybody to try to persuade somebody back to a traditional view of gender. Pastors now no longer are safe to preach that marriage is between a husband and wife. That God's desire is not one of homosexual relationship or transgenderism, but rather it is that in that that we deny the desires there, we deny self those things that God actually deems is sinful. And we walk in his righteousness, finding our fulfillment in him. That's persecution. That's what we fight for as a church. When the gospel is compromised, when we can no longer preach the word of God the way that God has designed it to be preached, that's persecution. You can imagine. You can imagine the the backlash that these pastors must be getting, right? They're bigots, they're insensitive. But the cost is jail. And the question for us this morning is, are we ready to endure those persecutions? Can we have comfort knowing the future of his church? Can we focus on the right battles? It's easy to get lost in the weeds. It's easy to begin to make secondary issues primary. The church is not a place for taking up bully pulpit items, preferences. The church is a place where we land on the truth and let the truth of God, if it's going to offend, offend. But we live in the grace of God so that people might see the love of God through us, the joy of God through us. Yesterday, I saw a a news article, a post that came out And some of you might know who Deepak Chopra is. He's a a man who is is basically has adopted this idea of the secret that if you just believe in positive thinking, if you just believe in this kind of quantum physics mentality that what's going to happen is if you think it, it will happen. And all you got to do is is affirm yourself, affirm yourself, affirm yourself, and it's going to come to pass. You know what he said yesterday? He said, we are in need of a pandemic of joy. You know what? He got it right, that part. Everything else is wrong, but he got that part right. And the people who are to be displaying his joy are Christ's people. We have Christ. We have the joy of Christ. We have the peace of Christ. And unfortunately, we've been distracted by so many other things. We're fighting over things that do not matter eternally. And in the process, what people see in us is not the joy of God. They see us as angry and frustrated and antagonistic. 
It's not the way God desired us to live amongst the people of the world. We were to be the ones displaying his love. We were the ones to be walking in his joy with the primary focus of his gospel. And so in verse 5, it says, This evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. So it's not sadistic. The suffering is not sadistic. But rather, it's actually evidence of God's righteous judgment. How? Well, we're told in 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9, it says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you don't know Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Here's what he's saying. He's saying it's actually in the trials that God is judging or judging the household of God, testing it with fire, refining his people, and showing us that there is no way to live righteously apart from Jesus. There is no way to experience his joy, his peace, to be his witnesses apart from him. It testifies to that truth that the righteous judgment of God will be upon all sinners unless Christ's righteousness has been imputed to him through the work of the cross. That's an awesome truth. And what does the trial do? What does the persecution do? It actually refines us. So that what? So that there might be a genuineness of faith seen in our perseverance. Remember that Jesus said that there was seed that fell on rocky ground. And that that seed was lifted up and taken because it wasn't rooted in It was received with joy initially, but amidst the persecution and trials, it was snatched away. Persecutions and trials actually are not simply for the refining moments where God is making us more like him, but it is in making us more like him, we grow in confidence that we are his. Isn't it amazing to watch somebody suffering and experiencing joy? It testifies to the truth of who God is. See, through this suffering, God sanctifies and readies his church for his return. Through his suffering, he's preparing a bride for himself. So he's already positionally, through Jesus, through repentance and belief, counted us worthy for his salvation. But then as he's readying to come, he's preparing a church that is looking more and more and more like him. In Revelation 19, 6 through 8, it says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of a mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the mighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds 
of the saints. Christ has readied the bride. And it's through these persecutions and trials that he's showing us that he's readying a bride for himself. Meaning that we come before the Lamb, before the Lord, and we're being made more and more like Christ. This isn't something that you can do on your own. It's only done through God and His work in your life through Jesus. So how is God's righteous judgment then a comfort to His church? Well, let's look at the aspects then of God's judgment, of His righteous judgment. The first is that God will dispense His justice when Christ returns. God will dispense His justice when Christ returns. Now, remember here, They're struggling. They're experiencing persecution, trials. They're wondering, is this all worth it? And where is God's justice? Because this stinks right now. What I'm experiencing right now stinks. This idea of just, God, are you really just? Is this really going to happen? I was once told that one of the best part about these verses is this is called EJ. When you see these verses in your scripture, write in a little note, EJ for eventual justice. When you want to take justice into your own hands, be remembered, reminded that God is the one who disperses his justice when Christ returns. It says, since indeed God considers it just when the Lord is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, Christ will return. And when he returns, he will come to dispense the justice, his justice, his righteous justice judgment. The first aspect of that justice is the idea that he will repay evil and give rest to those who endure in faith. God's justice demands a just response. Think about it for a second. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Sin has a consequence and it will be repaid. There's no avoiding a God who is holy and righteous. And therefore, there is no way to avoid the consequence of sin apart from Jesus. Because it is in Jesus where Jesus grants us his righteousness through faith. And it is through his righteousness that now what God sees is not our sin, but it sees him perfectly without sin. See, Jesus went to the cross, bore the weight of our sin on that cross, died for our sin, and counted us free for all those who believe. That's an awesome news for us. And he says that when Christ comes, here's what will happen. He will repay evil. Those who are not in Christ, he will repay for the sin that is present. But for those who have believed on Christ, he says he will grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. He'll give you rest. When Christ returns, he's going to give you rest. Things will change. Sometimes the affliction that we experience always doesn't seem light and momentary, does it? In this life, affliction can seem like it's a lifetime. Years. Think about ailments that you may have. 
man, if these ailments just went away, I'd be all good. God calls those ailments, the worst ailments in your life, as light, momentary afflictions. That's how great eternity with him is. These are light, momentary afflictions. Romans 6, excuse me, Romans 2, 6 through 10 says, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. His point is that we can't do good apart from Jesus. There is no righteousness apart from Jesus. One commentator says, A world in which justice was not done at last would not be God's world at all. God has to deal justly with sin. His justice demands it. See what happens when we overemphasize just one attribute of God? Love becomes tolerance. We begin to excuse what God would never excuse. We fail to see that we're all sinners, every single one of us. And my sin may look different from yours, or it may look just like it. But we're all in the need of grace, the grace of God. So, the what... of God's dispensing justice is that he will repay evil and give rest to those who endure in faith. The who will receive or be at the end of this dispensing of justice are unbelievers. His full and fair justice will be inflicted against unbelievers. His full and fair justice will be inflicted against unbelievers. Who is an unbeliever? Those that have not put their faith in Christ for their salvation and do not obey the gospel of the Lord. What does that mean? That means that our belief is actually tied to our obedience. Meaning that when we confess Jesus, we are confessing him as Lord. James tells us that even the demons believe who Jesus is. The distinction between those saved are those who say, listen, I'm confessing you as Lord. My desire is to actually walk in obedience with you, that you will be the Lord of my life. We can't claim Christ and continue to walk in obedience and believe that his salvation is significant for us. Now, we're going to sin still. We're going to have seasons where we may walk in disobedience. But if we remain in disobedience, if our heart is one of rebellion, there should be no confidence that we know Jesus. In fact, Paul's saying here, listen, rather than leaning and erring toward the side that you actually do know Jesus, you need to err toward the side that you don't and understand that this is what is coming. See, when we're in sin, 
we love to minimize our own sin. When we're not in sin, we can minimize our own sin. What Paul is trying to help us see here is that there is comfort for the believer, but there should be no comfort for the unbeliever. The day of judgment should cause a reaction, should cause a turning towards the Lord and no longer living saying, yes, I love Jesus, or yes, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Christ, but not walking in obedience with him. He's saying there should be no confidence or comfort for the one who walks in that. There is to be a perseverance. That's what he talked about, being worthy of the calling. There is to be a perseverance in our faith. Now this word vengeance here, where he says inflicting vengeance on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. This vengeance is not revenge. It's not driven by vindictiveness. The word actually in Greek carries with it the idea of unwavering justice. That God will bring an unwavering justice. It means that he will do what he said he's going to do. And that he has to because his character demands of it. God demands holiness and he cannot and will not violate his own character. David Guzik says it's the idea that this is an application of full justice on the offender. Nothing more and nothing less. It's perfect justice. We don't have a concept of that today. We see broken justice systems. And yet Christ will come not with a broken one. For those who are wrestling to to believe in Jesus, there will be no second chance. God will not make an excuse for you because you did wonderful things in serving others here. You'll only be counted righteous through Jesus. And that's the hope that we have together. He goes on. We've dealt with the what and the who. And then the question is, the where. Where is God's justice meted out? They're condemned to hell. Unbelievers, disobedient to the gospel, the afflictors, the persecutors of the believers, they're condemned to hell. It says, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Now there has been a push, a heresy that has driven into the church over the last few years. And this idea of almost denialism or, or universalism that's taking place, that one, that there is no hell, and the other, that all people will avoid hell. Both of those violate God's justice. If there's any question about whether there is hell, this passage brings it to light. It proves to us that there is a hell. Now notice something about this hell. It speaks about Christ coming in a flaming fire. That they'll suffer the punishment of eternal destruction 
away from the presence of God and from the glory of his might. So what is it? It's an eternal dying without death. It's, it's an eternal torment without death. It's the constant state of dying, being in death. Now, what's unique about this is Paul points out that God is not present, away from the presence of God and from his might. Why? What is he saying? It's final. It's eternal. There's no way out. God's salvation, which is available through you, the work of the cross today, will not be available for you if you are in hell. Here's the other thing that's saying. Fire by itself isn't necessarily a bad thing. God refines us. He speaks of that as a refining fire. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? For some of you that know that story, it's a story of three Israelites who were in Babylon. And they go into a furnace being condemned for their faith in God. And they are cast into this iron stove of burning, this hot stove. And we're told that when they went in there, that even the people that dragged them into the furnace, they themselves died because the heat was stoked so hot. But we're told that there was one found walking in and amongst them in that furnace. And when they came out, they were not even touched and they were not even singed. They didn't even smell of smoke. You can endure a fire with Jesus, but you cannot endure it apart from him. There is no salvation apart from Jesus. Hell is an eternity apart from Jesus. There is no rescue. His might will not be near. It is done and final. And for those who are wrestling with the truth of Jesus, I want to encourage you this morning, know that truth, that that is the consequence of a life apart from Christ. But Christ has given you a way out. And that way out is Jesus. And here he goes on. And he says, not from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of might, he goes on and he says, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you is believed. So these aspects of God's justice, his righteous judgment is one that he dispenses justice, but then he glorifies himself in believers. So the second aspect of his justice is that God will glorify himself in believers, his church. Here's the good news for his church. He'll glorify us. So when he comes, he will judge the unbeliever. And then he will glorify himself in the believer. Why can we endure persecution? Because God will glorify himself in us. Now, think about this for a minute. What does that mean? Well, 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 56 says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all fall asleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. 
For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on the immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. When Christ comes, he's going to glorify you because he is in you through his spirit. You will be made new, restored in that perfection. The dead will rise again. Those who are present in that day when Christ returns, it says that they will be changed. They may not die, but they will be changed. They will be glorified as well. Now think about this. We think about all the beauty that's in there of a restored body. I mean, I'm not a very good looking guy. This is a hopeful day for me, right? So for all of us, we think about that. One of the things that we think about and we wonder about is what happens when, when we experience the glorification of God. But I want you to hear what Paul says here because this is awesome. He says, and to be marveled at among all who have believed. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. There will be a marveling that will take place and it won't just be in the physicalness of our own bodies, but it will be in the work that God has done in us. Our minds will be renewed. All that trash that goes on in our own minds and our own hearts, gone. We will be renewed and restored. This is good news. I will look at others and see what God has done in others. Those that you're walking with, those of you who are struggling and saying, God, why will you not take this sin away from me? This is the biggest burden ever. God's saying it'll be gone. And you will stand in amazement of how could this so master my life before and yet in an instant it's gone. The glorification is not just physical. It is a heart transformation. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, those who look upon the saints will feel a sudden wonderment of sacred delight. They will be startled with the surprising glory of the Lord's work in them. We thought he would do great things, but this, this surpasses conception. Every saint will be a wonder to himself. I thought my bliss would be great, but not like this. All his brethren will be a wonder to the perfected believer. He will say, I thought the saints would be perfect, but I never imagined such a transfiguration of excessive glory would be put upon each of them. I could not have imagined my Lord to be so good and gracious. His glorification is far more than we will ever understand. And his goodness will be on display. We need to live with that expectation that this life is but temporary and his glorification is far greater than anything that we could ever experience. So how do we then respond to God's righteous judgment? How do we deal with that as believers, knowing that God will glorify himself in believers in his church? but he will also dispense justice towards those 
who do not know him. The first thing that we do is we prayerfully seek the work and purpose of God to be fulfilled in your life and the life of his church. We prayerfully seek the work and purpose of God to be fulfilled in your life and the life of the church. We need to be praying this. It says, to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by power. We are not to be sitting back waiting for this day. We really aren't to be standing around talking about the day, wondering if these are the times that God is near. We are to assume that every day since Christ ascended into heaven is a day closer to his return. And we are to live with that urgency. And that's my hope, as I shared last week, that what you hear here at Redemption each week is an urgency for the sake of the gospel. That we need to live with that. We've been given a wonderful opportunity in a season where we see disease, in a season where we see hope, we see a lack of hope, where we see division. And if we get off track, if we miss the mark of God's purpose and work, we're wasting the opportunity that God's given us to point people to Jesus. Ask yourself, do you spend more time reading blogs about politics, about masks, about vaccines, about why... Donald Trump is the spawn of Satan, or why Joe Biden is the spawn of Satan? Where do you spend your time? Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so it is exposed in the things that we're pursuing. What's most important to us right now? Is it Jesus? Is it his purpose and his work? Does that mean that I will sacrifice all things for his purpose and his work? We need to be prayerfully seeking God that he would make us people who are fulfilling his work and purpose. I need to be praying that for Jeff. Jeff needs to be praying that for me. Joy needs to be praying that for me. I need to be praying that for Joy. Our prayer should be not, hey, I hope they come to my understanding of politics. I hope they see things my way. We should be praying that we would be the agents fulfilling the purpose and work of God. We don't have time to waste. The time is now. Jude 17, verse 23 says, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostle of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, In the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. We need to live with intentionality. And dare I say that the Christ church today has gotten distracted. We seek things that God does not seek. We seek after the things that he's blessed us with. And we're more passionate about the things of our citizenship here than we are about the things as citizens of heaven. 
We must be careful. People need to know us not for the views that we hold about this life and this culture, but they need to know us because of the views that we hold about the kingdom of God and that those kingdom of God views are shaping how we live. Second thing, the first is prayer. The second is to testify to God's truth by seeking his glory according to his grace. We're to testify to God's truth by seeking his glory according to his grace. Our mission needs to be that we reflect Jesus, that we are known for Christ. This was the hope. I've mentioned before that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was one of the premier cardiologists in England. As I shared, he left cardiology. He was the cardiologist to the royalty. And he was a doctor by the age of 19 and a cardiologist by the age of 23. His work on heart valve infections was way ahead of its time. And by the age of 30, he had left medicine, actually he left medicine in his around 25, 26, went into ministry, and he went and he pastored this small little tiny church in Wales. And he was asked by a person, why would you go to Wales first? And second of all, don't you think you're wasting your time ministering to this small group of people? Jones spoke and he shared of the story of responding to that truth, of saying that he brings more life to those 30 people than he ever did to the people that he was serving. In a paraphrase. The question for us is this. Who are we bringing the gospel to? And who is our life testifying about? Does our life testify to the concerns of this world or does our life testify to the concerns about the eternity of those around us? As we love one another well and as we walk in faith, God will help us see that his judgment is completely righteous. And because of that justice, as believers, we can have comfort. But that comfort should propel us forward, not in apathy, but in mission, prayerfully seeking God's purpose to be fulfilled in our lives and prayerfully seeing us testify to the truth of who Jesus really is. Let's pray. Father God, simply put, may we live with an urgency this morning. God, may we have hope knowing that you will rectify the wrongs that take place in this life. But God, may we live on mission, knowing that it is only you who can fulfill your purpose in us if we're allowing you to do so. May we be submitted to you, God. And may we find joy in your glory. May that joy last. And may it propel us in the calling that you've given us. And we ask this in your name. Amen.